This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, in Silver Lake, and in Malibu, Aloe was created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Bob, and Jared, to create a rehab that treats addicts with compassion and connection rather than control. Their staff has decades of experience treating mental health disorders, treating addiction, and being able to focus on co-occurring mental health disorders, including SMI. Aloe prides itself at providing a comfortable detox for all addicts coming off of heroin or benzos or alcohol or coke. They make sure your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is critical, as we all know. They have amenities that you wouldn't believe. Fucking sound bath meditation, sweat lodge, surfing, equine therapy. You name it, they have it. And if you're fucked and you need a place to go and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get help, I strongly recommend Aloe. This episode is also brought to you by the Sober Buddy app. It is incredibly exciting because the Sober Buddy app is finally available. Many of you love the Sober Buddy daily email, and this app takes it to the next level. Sober Buddy checks in on you every day to see how you're feeling and gives you tips and motivation based on your mood. This sounds great. The daily challenges shift and change based on how you interact with Buddy on the app, and it also keeps track of all your challenges and lists. Plus, there's a super satisfying sober tracker with a confetti explosion, and everybody finds a confetti explosion to be super satisfying. That is for damn sure. Search Your Sober Buddy in the App Store. Again, it's Your Sober Buddy. As addicts, we can never have enough tools to get better, so use the Your Sober Buddy app. It is in the App Store. And last but not least, this episode of Dopey is brought to you by listeners like you in the Dopey Nation through the power of the Dopey Patreon account. The Dopey Patreon page is going nuts. We have 13 free mini episodes up. There's bonus content. There's bonus art. Throw a couple of bucks. You get a free Dopey decal. You help make Dopey get to the next level. Uh, I have a day job. I have a full-time job. Wouldn't it be amazing if Dopey was my job? And uh, it could be a bigger entity to serve you guys as well. So go to www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. Check out the free materials and kick down a few bucks if possible. Also... um, We have amazing new stuff in the Dopey store at dopeypodcast.com. We have the fucking new Good So Bad t-shirt, tank top, long sleeve, the fucking mugs. Don't don't you guys want to be drinking coffee out of a Dopey mug, a officially licensed Dopey mug? I know I can't wait to get one. Um, Also, I think I have a few snapbacks, and I definitely have a shitload of stickers. If you want, Venmo me. um, Just reach out, and I will send it to you. Also, on the website, there is a new page, the Dopey Survey. If you have a chance, go to the website and fill out the Dopey Survey. Uh, It's Dopey, but it will help us maybe get more advertisers, which would be good for the show. Anyway, enough with the fucking ads. Here is the fucking show. Let's hit these motherfuckers with some Dopey, dude. And welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. I'm in my attic. I think podcast 
people tend to make a big deal about where they're sitting when they do their show, like Marin's in his garage, and I think Dak Shepard is in his attic, and I have to say I'm in my attic. But I think it's important to know where the show is coming out of. I'm in a really fucking disgustingly cluttered attic like an episode of Hoarders. We moved into this place two years ago, and like we haven't touched anything. It's just massive piles of junk. Um, and I actually had a dude, uh, a handyman guy up here and I showed him my space and I was like, how can I turn this space into a proper office? And I said, um, I'm embarrassed of how disgusting our attic is. And he said, everybody lives like this from the richest people down the road to the poorest people. Everybody's got junk somewhere in their house. So I appreciated that. I'm still very embarrassed by the mess in the attic. I am convinced that somewhere in this attic is my old computer and somewhere on that old computer are dopey lost episodes. I'm convinced of it. I just don't know where the computer is and, uh, and it's broken. So one day I will find the computer and see if I can find these lost episodes because they're not on Chris's old computer. I had his sister look for them. So stay tuned for that. I hope you guys are doing really, really well. Uh, it's July, which means Dopey Day is coming. July 24th, we are acknowledging that Chris, who created Dopey with me, overdosed on July 24th, and we are asking everybody in the Dopey Nation to put the Dopey logo over their eyes in solidarity. In solidarity. And it's kind of like a, like a V for Vendetta thing, like where you don't know who's an addict. You don't know who's in recovery. The idea is to... Obviously, end stigma and shame and all that shit around addiction and to also promote Dopey. So put the logo over your eyes on July 24th. But almost more important than all of that stuff, it's a way to celebrate Chris. It's a way to uh, acknowledge Chris and to commemorate Chris. So July 24th is the, again, the day for Dopey Day. It's the terrible day that we lost Chris. So uh, acknowledge the loss, acknowledge that you stand with Dopey, that you stand with addicts, and put the Dopey logo over your eyes. If you don't know how to do it, there's a million people in Dopey Nation Facebook that can show you how to do it. Let me know if you guys are going to participate in Dopey Day. Write an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com, and we can direct you to the proper resources to Dopey up your face properly. I'm incredibly excited about the show today, by the way. The dude on the show brings the Dopey in such a hardcore way that I had to put Chris on the intro with the let's hit these motherfuckers with some dopey, dude. Because this guy's name is Mike Malak. You might know him from YouTube star Logan Paul, or you might know him from his own YouTube uh, show, The Night Shift. He's Logan Paul's co-host. He works on Logan Paul's team, and now he has his own gigantic YouTube show that reaches millions of people. But he has a fucking incredibly dopey past. And the truth is, it's pretty miraculous that he lived uh, to get to where he is now, that he survived it and that he's doing so well. He actually just put out this incredible memoir, this crazy dopey drug memoir. It's called The Fifth Vital. I totally recommend reading it if you like drug memoirs. He, he brings it down. It's pretty hardcore. So without further ado... Straight out of YouTube, straight out of Los Angeles, California, by way of Milford, Connecticut, the great Mike Malak. All right, so this is pretty crazy. Um, as we're calling this summer the Wicked Fire Summer, because I'm getting some pretty fucking good guests. And, and some dude in the Dopey Nation hit me up and he said, 
Have you heard of this guy, Mike Malak? Is that how you say your name? Is that the right way? Yeah, to say you got it. You, you nailed it. Thanks, for sure. <laughs> um, fucking, I was like, okay, and I and I look into you, and you're like this ridiculously huge internet person, you know? Yeah. With, I mean, I'm old, so like I knew who Logan Paul was. But I didn't know who Logan Paul was. You know what I'm right, saying? Right, right, and right. And he's like, you got to check out this book, The Fifth Vital. So I order the book, The Fifth Vital, and I start reading it. And I'm like, holy shit, this guy has to come on the show. Welcome to Dopey right. Mike Malek. How you feel? Dude, thank you so much for having me, man. I'm feeling good, bro. Just trying to get through these these wacky times. These wacky times. Like, even just doing this interview right now is, a, is crazy. Like... Set up a. Com- I'm looking at a computer. I got a camera in front of me. I have headphones in. I'm on a podcast set, but I'm not on your podcast set. It's a fucking. It's a mess, bro. But it's not any kind of mess that people like you or me or anybody watching the show probably isn't attuned to or, or accustomed to. You know what I'm saying? This is the kind of shit we. I think addicts have a have a uh, a strange and uncanny ability to get through very odd things. Like, yo, any problem, any problem that comes my way, dude, for some reason, I just am automatically like, yo, I can get through this shit, bro. I totally can get through this shit. Well, I mean, I have to say, when when COVID hit, it reminded me of, like, rehab or it reminded me of, like, getting sick. I actually got the coronavirus. I got it. I had it, and it felt, it didn't feel as bad as kicking dope. You know what I mean? That was my limit. Not even close. It wasn't like that. And, but the world stopping. Everything being fucked up, not seeing people, it felt like withdrawal to me. It reminded yeah. me of that experience. Like, you've been locked. I mean, you're in some crazy compound in L.A., right? Yeah, so I'm in this compound. I, 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 I'm sure we'll get into all this, but, uh, you know, I live with YouTuber Logan Paul. We have a big podcast. I call it a big podcast. I guess it's a big podcast. We have a big podcast a big together, podcast. you know. A million to a million and a half views slash listens per episode. And so, you know, we've had some great guests on. We've had, you know... Or great, if you want to call them that. We've had Ben Shapiro, Alex Jones. We've had, you know, actors, actresses, uh, Lamar Odom, you know, basketball players, athletes. So I'm here at the house. We're on the set right now. And I've been living here for a couple years. Um, and from the outside looking in, if you just saw this life that I live, you're like, oh, here's another YouTube creator, another fucking kid who, who turned a camera on and made some dumb fucking shit walking around, you know, telling some stupid story. Um, and that's what it appears, you know, and that's what it looks like. But obviously today, uh, you know, for your people that haven't read the book, uh, there's a lot more to the story, right? Well, it's like the dream of most anybody you meet in treatment. You, you, you go to a 30 day program and everybody dreams of getting the life that you managed to get. And my life is good too. I have two kids and a wife and my life is good, but you have like this fantasy fucking good life, you know, with you know, crazy hot porn stars and money and world travel and vlogging and all this stuff. So like, it's like, it's amazing. And, and, and the biggest thing it shows is the miracle of recovery, like that anything can happen. You happened, but let's, let's back it up. When, when, when is the first time, I mean, a lot of, another interesting thing about the fifth vital to me is just the concept, you know, it it was that, why don't you explain the concept of, of when they, they added a fifth vital? Oh, oh, the fifth vital itself and what yeah. the meaning of the book is. Yeah, so so for the entire history of, of human existence, the health of a human being was based on the measuring of four vital signs, your, your blood pressure, your pulse, your temperature, and your respiration, your yes, breathing. Yes, sir. Nice. And so people would say, oh, this person – I always have trouble with that. And so they'll say, oh, this person's you know, vastly healthy or, or, or unhealthy based on those four things. 
And then in 2000, in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, they added in the fifth vital sign, which, as you and I know, and people listening to this may know, uh, was the, the question a doctor asking you or a nurse asking you, how much pain are you in right now? And generally, that, that, that question is answered with a, se- a sequence or a series of smiley faces or sad faces on a, on a chart. And what, what happened was the pharmaceutical industry made a decision that pain was being dramatically undertreated in the American public. And they had to do something about it. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, conjecture or guesses about why that was done. Was it because, you know, the pharmaceutical industry wanted to make more money or whatever, or the government, blah, 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 all that shit that, you know, we have fun talking about, but let's deal with the facts today. That fifth vital, that question, how much pain are you in, was the precursor and the preface to what is the great American opioid epidemic, which I landed in for call it eight years, which was a a horrific, horrific addiction to Oxycontin, uh, which led to an addiction to, to, um, to heroin, um, as well as a six year bender on fucking methadone, uh, you know, uh, prescribed Xanax. I mean, I was, I was crack cocaine at one point. I mean, I was at the very, very farthest end of, uh, of addiction and had a daily addiction that was fueled by my own dealing as well. And so, you're getting uh, too some... far ahead here, man. Okay, yeah, sorry. You're, you're giving so, sorry, it all sorry. away in the first yeah. five minutes. So, I don't want to fucking do that. Sorry, I, I do that sometimes. You're a kid. Um, you're a kid. You're playing basketball, right? Yep, and you yep. get hurt. And, 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 and you go to the hospital. And they fucking put you on a drip, correct? Yep. They, so I, I, I fell playing basketball. I, I ruptured my spleen, had a very high amount of internal bleeding. Oh, my God. Um, this was like one of, the, one of the very first major traumatic injuries. And, and I you know talk about this in the book. Obviously, I remember... Being, uh, you know, awake and conscious as they fed this massive tube in my nose, down my throat, into my stomach. And uh, I watched my, you know, my mother shrieking in horror as they pulled this blood and, and vial and, and, and brown fluid out of my stomach into this holding tank and said, hey, man, we got we got to get you in immediately for fucking surgery. I was 15 years old. I went in. They sliced my entire my entire uh, abdomen down the center. They removed the spleen. They, they cleaned up the insides. And when I got out, I started my very first two-week, uh, um, in you know, um, met, uh, morphine drip. My very first two-week morphine drip, and so that was my kind of my introduction to narcotics. Two weeks after that, I was back in for a medical relapse where they had to untangle my intestines, which had tied in a knot after post-surgery. Another two weeks of intravenous uh, uh, morphine drip, which then led to Percocets and Vicodins. Now I'm 15 years old. This is this is my introduction to. To, to narcotics. And you had smoked weed at that point. I had just, I, I believe actually just thereafter, at like 15 and a half or 16 was when I tried my first recreational marijuana with, with some friends of mine. And this this is probably one of the funnier stories. I, I had these two really good friends of mine when I was growing up and they had already started smoking weed. And they were like, try it, man. You know, it's all, it's all fine. And instead of, you know, taking the one hit, the addicts that they kind of already were and the addict that I already was without even knowing it, it was, you know, 15 hits of the joint, three bong rips. We were smoking out of the bowl. This is my very first time smoking weed. And I got so paranoid and, and, uh, and, and, and like everyone was against me, which marijuana did to me for the rest of the time that I smoked it. And I didn't know that it just wasn't the drug for me. And uh, they pulled out a BB gun and put it to my head. 
And they said, we're going to fucking kill you right now. We're going to kill you. And it, and it blew my mind. And I ran down the stairs. I fell down the stairs in the back of the house. Because they were and, fucking uh, with you, though. And you they didn't were re- fucking yeah, with and you me. Didn't I didn't realize. It. Yeah, 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 it was my first time smoking weed. But that was the first time. So that was probably about you know six months or, or a year after, I, I believe, after, the, after I had my first introduction to narcotics. See, I find that to be interesting because I talk to a lot of people, a lot of addicts, a lot of people in recovery, and they often break it down like there's two kinds of addicts. There's addicts that wouldn't have become drug addicts if not for pharmaceutical companies, and then there's addicts who sought out drugs. And your story kind of straddles both, in my opinion. Like, my story, like, I didn't, I, I, like, never had, I felt bad. After I read your book, I was like, I can't believe I never did an OC80. Like, I can't believe I never did. The like, Holy Grail, dude. The I Holy know. Grail. I was wasting my of- whole life on street dope. And, and, well, the methadone didn't get... The methadone doesn't do what OC80s. I was on methadone for six years also. I was on heroin for 10. I, I was on Xanax. We have a lot in common. Crack yeah. cocaine didn't do it for me. But, um, you know, that question of, like, a person who seeks out drugs versus you just, you know, you hurt yourself, and they gave you, like that feeling, that ridiculous, indescribable feeling, you know, which, you know, describe it if you want. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's the feeling of escape that we all know so well. It's an escape from all of those wicked thoughts that, that probably exist in the majority of addicts. Obviously, we know that, you know, mental health and addiction are intertwined completely. And, you know, uh, probably the majority of addicts are mental health sufferers and vice versa. Right. And, um, and so, yeah, that was my first introduction to this idea that those thoughts can be put in a box and, and give and, and put away all those ideas of anxiety or self-doubt or low self-worth mm. can be put away by, by, by doing drugs. And obviously as, as a, as a young person, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, but it, it's, it further muddied the waters and further complicated this idea of choice versus disease. And so I talk about this in the book as well. Obviously there's a lot of people out there who Blame the ad- blame the addict. Oh, they made the fucking choice to pick up the drug in the first place, and 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 discount the mental health suffering or or whatever it is that goes into that initial choice. There's a whole lead up and run up to that first choice to use drugs, whether it's recreationally or medically. And so, me getting introduced to it both ways, into, introduced to drugs both ways, further muddied my ability to say which one was it. You know, oh. which one came first, the chicken or the egg? And I mean, at the end of the day, the 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 main point I make is. I don't care. I don't care why someone became an addict. I don't care why, if it was a choice, if it was their disease, if it was mental health. The only thing I care is that that person isn't discounted as a fucking human after that happens. There's a lot of people out there that want to say, oh, they made the fucking choice. They made the choice to become an addict or, oh, well, they're an addict. Would you say that to your mom who smoked cigarettes for too long and is dying of lung cancer? Would you say that to your to your friend who ate a few too many cheeseburgers and is dying from heart disease? Hell fucking no. Addicts are people just like everybody else who, whether they made a bad choice or were given a bad deal genetically, deserve the respect and love of 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 the world. You know what I'm saying? And and, and help to get through that. So I've been I haven't done enough to be honest with you to use my platform to fight even more and I will um, but the book's kind of the first step in that well you coming on dopey man you can't discount that That's, it's I'm honored bro Here you I'm are. honored here you are I'm honored uh, I'm honored too um, and I think your story is really interesting in a lot of ways because you know the idea of what your life is like now isn't that crazy if you date it back to like then your first move as soon as you smoke weed was like how do I turn this into more in terms of hustling 
You know, right. you got you jumped right into that. I mean, you almost like would you say you got compulsive about dealing as soon as you started smoking? Absolutely. The dealing, I believe the dealing may have been a harder addiction for me to beat than than doing drugs, to be honest with you, because there's there's think about it for somebody who has self-worth and self-doubt and and issues like that, self-esteem issues. Being the dealer is the all powerful. Being the dealer is the almighty. I, I have now been given this magic fucking wand. And I wasn't just a I wasn't just a nick and dime dealer. Like I was playing with some fucking major players, dude, in, in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which I'm sure you're familiar with the area. Mm-hmm. Then to New Haven, Connecticut. I mean, we were making runs to Queens to pick up Ma- massive amounts. You know what I'm saying? This was not a joke, and it was it was cocaine and, and heroin. And so I was given a tremendous amount of power and 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 drastically underestimated the damage that I was doing. I thought I was playing some sort of uh, street doctor. I was looking at these people coming to me. I'm so sick. Please, you have to help me. I have to go to work today or I have a kid I have to take care of or whatever the fuck. And I was like, oh, I can help you. I can help you. I can help you. Well, not only that, you're the man. You know what I mean? You're making money. You're like the man. And you're watching that incredible magic thing of a fucking sick person get well. It's It's like the craziest part of opiate addiction, in my opinion. You know? It's 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 just mind blowing to watch someone who you know moments before obviously can't control their fucking bowels or throwing up. It's a, it's an absolute disaster. And be, having that power to be able to make them better, it's it's strangely this the the when I obviously learned the error in those ways after you know all the shit that I went through. But it's strangely like the enabler tough love versus uh, sorry the enabler versus tough love route that parents have to go through. As a dealer, I played the enabler to people's addictions. I thought I was helping them, but in the end, I was I was keeping them addicted longer. And, you know, I, I, I tie that in with power and money and all those things, and obviously my entire vision was blurry, but, it's, but strangely, like, the way I've talked about uh, uh, getting better and getting out of that hole is the first step has to be getting clean, and I was not helping people do that. So it's... Uh, well, yeah, power, power is a tough fucking addiction to beat, bro. You cannot possibly uh, beat yourself up about that shit. I, I mean, you were a kid, first of all. You were a kid, and you were a rap music listener, too. And, and if you're listening to fucking rap music, and you're listening to Biggie Smalls and Jay-Z, and you're getting high, I mean, the only thing is you broke the, the first commandment of crack, which is you got high on your own supply. Get, yeah, don't never get high on your own supply. I know, I know. And that, and that was, by the way, and that was... That's probably the biggest justification I use or, you know, you want to call it justification or reasoning I use for why I sold. And that was because I had, a, I had an – my addiction was insane. I had somebody call me out the other day uh, on the internet, strangely, that hadn't read my book. And they're like, this kid, he, he looks too good. He's too successful now for the level of addiction that he claims he has. He had. Has. Or, or the level of, you know, drug use he had done in the past. And – I'm like, dude, you don't even fucking know the half. I mean, bro, I used to be sitting with 50, 60, 80, 100 bundles of heroin at a time. You know what I'm saying? Like, I bet I would pick up fingers of heroin, 10, 15, 20 grams of rock heroin, blend it down myself, and sit there with a, pu- a mound of it. The only thing that stopped me was not price or cost like all, all other addicts stop for that reason is I have to stop right now or I'm going to die in this hotel room that I'm bagging up in. Well, hold and up, so hold up, hold yeah. up, because this is too good. I, yeah. we, we went from weed and then we went to, <laughs> to oxys, right? And when, and when did you get the, the I want to hear about like, I know the audience is going to love this kind of stuff. Like we don't get a lot of people on the show 
who like sold oxies, you know, who like and who built up a little fucking empire in suburban Connecticut. You yeah. were a lot of people's hookup. Like, yeah. how did it happen and what was it like? So basically the same people that the same people that I got involved selling weed with other white kids like me from suburban Connecticut were the same people that then made their way into the sale and distribution of Oxycontin. I mean, I mean, our town, just like so many other towns on the East Coast especially, was absolutely demolished by Oxycontin. I mean, fucking overrun on a level that people just don't understand. I mean, the, the level of the percentage of my graduating class that sniffed Oxycontin before they walked the aisle for their graduation and commencement ceremony, mind-blowing. I mean, an actual double-digit percentage of my high school class was addicted to opiates by the time at 16, 17 years old. Because the way Oxycontin bridged the gap between marijuana and hardcore drugs like heroin. It was a pill. Every Everybody from our parents to our grandparents played around with pills in their days. My mom was taking Quaaludes. The ones before them were taking something else. And it was, it was, it's a, people take pills. They see a pill, they take it. Oxy wasn't like any other pill. Oxycontin was not like any other pill. It was all, it was the entire bottle of Percocets in one dose. Right. And so, so by the time we had tried it, you know, I was selling ounces of weed or QPs of weed at the time. By the time we tried Oxy, I mean, it was a matter of weeks before we were fucking addicts, dude. You know what I'm saying? And so as soon as that happened, it just was the logical next choice in the, in the, in the lineage to say, yo, I'm going to, I'm going to start carrying something that the dogs can't sniff that has the, uh, uh, the upside potential to make me thousands and thousands of fucking dollars and support, and most importantly, support my own habit. And how, how quickly did your habit get out of control in that situation? Oh, my God, dude. I mean, I mean, whereas other people would save up money to buy an Oxy-80, um, whole, like I said, holy grail OC-80. There's a lot of people out there now that, that do, you know, rock, Roxy's or Perk per 30s. We used to look at those things and be like, get those things the fuck away from us. We don't want that bullshit. Either pussy. you have OC-80s or you don't. That's, that was the pussy shit. Other people save up for, for a whole day selling cans, stealing from their parents, fucking doing yard work, whatever, to get 60 bucks to buy an Oxy-80, which was the street cost at the time, so that they could ration out 20 milligrams here, 20 milligrams the next day, 20... We would break up five, six Oxy-80s and just sniff until our noses were gone. I mean, I, I, I've lost the majority of, of flesh in, or, or, or cartilage in, in both of my nostrils from just breaking down 80s, mixing them with double bar Xanax and just sniffing lines that were that were this thick. Right. You know what I'm saying? I mean, and he's holding just, up like four inches if you're not seeing this. Yeah, I mean, we would just sit and, and, and absolutely go crazy. And so um, it, 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 was, um, it, it, it was pretty quick the time between when we first started, the first time I ever used an Oxy-20, which was, you know, my junior or sophomore or junior year of high school, a junior year of high school, and I did a 20 milligram line. It wasn't very long between then and the times when I was doing five, six, seven, eighties a day, which is six to seven hundred dollars worth of product a day. So you have to imagine the amount I was selling that made that okay was and, 
a pretty decent amount. And the tolerance, the tolerance that you develop at that point is like ridiculous. It's like not possible to comprehend like the amount of bundles you'd have to do to not be sick. Oh my God. Dude. It's like, oh my God. It's incomprehensible, which is we would why, break down. A, we would break down a whole bunch. Uh, well, we'll get to it, but yeah. So that's another thing that happened. Basically you moved up in the chain of dealers, you know, the do, I mean, cause you were very ambitious. Right. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, that's the most interesting thing to me also is that you were this ridiculous user, you know, this ridiculous drug addict who was ambitious to sell the most product just because you're ambitious. You had a fire in you. From what I could read in the book, it wasn't necessarily about the money and it wasn't necessarily because you had enough drugs either way. You just pushed yourself like that, which is what's evident in your life now, I think. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's no, you know, there's it's it, there's no uh, coincidence that I've ended up where I am. Do you know what I'm saying? There's no coincidence that that Jay-Z, who has a past of selling crack cocaine in the projects, or that Biggie Smalls had a past, or that all these other guys who were self-start drug dealers, which is, which is a hustle beyond a lot of people's comprehension. That is a 24-hour-a-day job. It is not some beautiful... I think people have this belief that it's some glorious fucking thing. It's, it's the dirtiest fucking most... You're in the same places that addicts are. And, you know, by, 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 the time, by the time my run ended, I was, I was not even selling anymore. I just became just a straight-up crackhead. I wasn't selling anything anymore. I was, I was smoking crack. I was doing five, six bundles a day. I was sniffing 10 Xanax bars. I mean, I was a disaster, and I couldn't even pick up product anymore. I'd burn all my connects. But the places you exist as a dealer are the same places. I mean, I was already sleeping on floors. I, didn't, I, wasn't, making, I wasn't making money. I was supporting a, a tragic addiction and... It was 24 hour a day, seven day a week work. That is strangely uh, uh, co-connected to the level of work I do now. Right. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? It's the same amount. It's 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 certain people are born to grind. Some certain people are born with that work ethic, and whether it manifests itself through uh, the sale of narcotics or the sale of YouTube videos that that have a much cleaner message. Um, it, one way or another, it's it's a person that was born to, to to hustle, you know. Totally, one one passage in the book that probably I don't know how meaningful it was to you, but for some reason it was really meaningful to me. It was like the, the oxy business is kind of taking off, and you're finding yourself at all these parties, but at the, and, and like you know you you're people are seeking you out for drugs, and women want to be with you because you have money and drugs and whatever, but you're in the room bagging up shit and selling it. Wherever you go, you plop yourself down, you bag up shit and sell it. And I know for me, like when I'm in a, a social situation, if I have something to do, I feel so much more comfortable than having to stand there and talk to somebody. <laughs> like, like how much was that part of it that you, like the social anxiety factor and you had this purpose at these situations? I strangely didn't have the social anxiety that I have now, or at least really? I don't. I don't remember it being as. And I want to get into that too, like down the line as we talk, maybe talk a little bit more about mental health later in the episode. But but um, I, I I I that wasn't the you know it, it helped. I just had a purpose. You know, it was the only thing that I wanted to do. It it it, it strangely like I was already exhibiting these high. Uh, this high propensity to do business. And whereas even the rest of my friend group who, who also sold a little bit would enjoy the party and be out there drinking, doing that kind of stuff. I always 
had my business as my main focus. It's almost like a little preview of what was to come, to be honest with you. And um, I, I credit that mobile laboratory that you're describing, that mobile laboratory mentality of, yo, I just picked up a, a – um, a, a batch or I just picked up at the time it was a lot of weed too before I because when I was still doing high school parties it was before I got into selling narcotics I would pick up a pound and I would know that as soon as I get to the party and everybody else starts partying I'm going into that bathroom with my digital scale and I'm going to sit there for a while and it's the same strangely once again it's the same kind of mentality I have now where I may shoot a video here right now knowing that I have to fly to New York to JFK to do something in New York and I know that on the plane, I'm going to be editing. Well, everybody else is taking shots, hanging out, eating peanuts. I'm going to be editing with my headphones in, listening to this podcast while editing a video, while simultaneously running a business deal for my book or recording my audiobook or doing the, the, I, I talk about this so much, the, the art of multitasking and the importance right. in this life. If you cannot run 10 to 15 things simultaneously. That is the skill set of every great person you fucking know. And and when I, I got my, my early start with that stuff, bagging up drugs at parties and running... The, I mean, bro, whether it was that or when it, or when it was time for me to start selling harder drugs, I was, I was in the car, driving the car, which was a manual six-speed G35 Infinity, weighing out shit on a scale weighing out coke or heroin on a scale while driving on the dashboard trying not to hit bumps while someone else was counting cash and I was running the numbers in my head in the passenger seat all of that training got me ready for the the shit I do now which is everything you know what I'm saying so it's so weird the little lessons we take from our addiction and from our past that we still carry into today not to mention just the compulsive nature of using. You know what I mean? Like you're going to go balls to the wall to get as much as you need to get that level, and it translates to what you're doing now also, just compulsivity and, and needing to do maximum. Like if you did maximum fucking dealing or maximum amount of drugs, now you do maximum stuff with this. You know, yeah. it's like balls yeah, everything to the wall. To, everything to the max, absolutely. I love um, also just... I think your story, it also very much just tells the story of drug addiction in suburbia. You know, when, when you, you couldn't find pills at some point and you run into your friend and you're like, can you, can you get me some, some oxys because your, your source dried up? And he's like, no, but I have some dope, right? Yeah. What, what, what was that moment like? Because like, like, I'm sure you knew you were doing synthetic heroin. You knew you were doing pure heroin, but you weren't doing heroin. Yeah, I mean... I try to I try to think back to that moment a lot and what um, what was going through my mind the first time when he said, "Yo, we can't get any uh, we can't get an oxy, but we can only get dope." And it's 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 the way I describe it in the book is like as an addict, when you get to a certain level of of desperation in life, that desperation overrides any other morality or ethics or things that you think you have in life. Desperation is a, is a, is a killer of all of those things. The desperate, the desperate person, the desperate, uh, addict or, or, or person suffering under any kind of traumatic situation in life will do whatever they can to make the pain stop. And so when someone said to me, yo, listen, like, this is what we have today and it's going to make your pain go away. I, I, I was sitting there sweating and hurting and 
I knew that there was an army of people that were out in the city sweating and hurting as well and waiting on me to make it stop. And, and I was like, damn, dude, like, I'm going to, I'm going to try this shit, you know? Totally. So as somebody who is a total oxy addict and then the oxy supply dries up and you wind up starting to do dope, what was the experience like in the first place? I mean, it's hard to really like measure back to like the to the first time that it happened yeah. um, or the first time that I tried dope and like how it compared that exact day. But but like heroin is a crapshoot. You know what I'm saying? Heroin's a crapshoot. You got, you, yes. you know, you, one day they're like, yo, the, the, the bags that are stamped with rush are the best bags. And one week they are the best bag, but then some other dealer in Bridgeport finds out that the rush bags are the hot bags on the street, and that week the fucking rush bags suck. And so the the, the biggest difference between doing heroin, which by the way I was I wasn't an intravenous user, I was a I, I was a sniffer. I know. Yeah, as I'm you, curious as, about that too, because because uh, you're killing your nose. I mean, I was a, a sniffer too until I I was never dealing. Right. Or, my dealing was so small time. Right. Like, I dealt to people at the methadone clinic. Like, we had a dope co-op. Like, one, one person buys the heroin the week, and the other <laughs> people just pick it up, and we just switch off because they were just a bunch of fucking methadone yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. But, like, what kept you from ever shooting up? So, this isn't in the book. This is a dopey uh, nation exclusive, actually. Thank God. Here, here, Thank we, here God. we go. No one, no one really knows this. I tried it. I tried it one time. Um, I, I, there was one day I was hanging out with, with one of my buddies. We were in his, his basement at his mom's house and, uh, he had clean needles. And at this point, pretty much this was, you know, as we were approaching, you know, kind of rock bottomish type area, everybody had kind of a lot, a lot of the people had switched to each intravenous at this point. And he said, yo, I got a batch of fresh needles, bro. And I, and I, and you know, we tried the product already. There's no fentanyl in it. And this was kind of pre-fentanyl days and it's, it's good. Everybody's doing it. Like you want to give it a shot. And for whatever reason that day, I kind of was just like, I, oh, there was a chick there that was also doing it. So that, you know how that always pushes us to do stupid shit. And uh, I was like, uh, you know, whatever, I'll give it a shot. And literally, and uh, I, I, I tried both heroin and cocaine that day intravenously. And the high was immediate. It was immediate. It was the fastest. It was the fastest thing ever uh, until I got to smoking crack because that's that's pretty quick too. Um, it was the fastest high I'd ever experienced, and something in me told me, said to me, "If you do this one more time, you are going to go to a place that you're not going to be able to come back from ever in the in the rest of your life." And and obviously, as as full blown addicts, that's usually not enough to scare us. But for some reason, just something in me was like, yo, put that in your, bo- in your back pocket and don't ever fucking do it again, dude. And so, and so for whatever reason, I never shot up again. I never did after that one day. And um, also, strangely, maybe it was just the day or something, but the high was faster. But for some reason, for me personally, it wasn't all that much more intense for some reason. I don't know why. I don't know why. It's a good thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like needles, you know, it's a mess. You know, the, 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 the amount of death from needles. Were you testing the dope for fentanyl back then? No, no, but I, I think basically what I was saying when I said that is basically like it's safe to shoot. Like, like you know, I mean, I think there was always impurities in product where people would run into trouble. Like they would get fucking sores on their – like there was always something happening. And basically everybody just said to me like, yo, this shit, you know, we're all doing it. No one's having issues. We've been using the same product for three or four days now. Like do you want to give it a shot? And so I took 
<laughs> it's so funny that I want to call this a calculated risk. <laughs> like, I took the calculated risk to shoot up heroin and, and cocaine that day, you know? Well, did you, did you shoot it together or separately? Se- uh, separately. I know, I didn't, I didn't do a proper speedball. And now I'm That's thinking. Right. Now I'm thinking back, like if I was a fucking pussy because of it, should I've actually? No, now it's like now it's like I got to try a speedball and see if it's worth it. But Just it's for not. that one, it's definitely yeah. fucking not, dude. It's definitely not worth it. Right. Um, my theory, though, I have a theory on this. The reason you didn't get into IV dope is because you had all the dope in the world. You know, people start shooting because they can't afford to keep up their habit. Yeah. I was sniffing like crazy dope. And my nose was clogged up and I ran out of money and someone was like, someone just shamed me for wasting my money and sniffing dope. And then, I mean, I had shot it years before and I, it scared the shit out of me. But at this point, I didn't have a job. I didn't have any money. Like, I needed to make every fucking grain of heroin count. Yeah. And, th- and that's how it happened. In your situation, you, you went from dealing oxys to dealing dope. You had dope all over the crazy, place. Crazy, like, crazy amounts. I mean, that was, that, I mean, at that point, like, I didn't, I was never like, oh shit, is this stuff gonna be good enough? If it wasn't good enough, I just did more. I do, would just, I mean, honestly, like it was a, it was an issue of of abundance. I mean, that the one story I tell in the book where I, I got pulled over after I had just bagged up. A lot of people ask me, they're like, what is the, what is the scariest moment? What was the scariest moment? Was it was it the leg hanging off with the gun pointed at the back of your head by the cops? Was it the was it the splenectomies? Was it getting thrown from the side of cars or all the different handguns in your mouth or to your head? Or the scariest moment of my life was the day when when that cop stood there after I got pulled over after I just bagged up and I was driving from New Haven to Bridgeport and I had my hands on the roof of the car with 350 bags of heroin in my pocket. When I was already on a five-year suspended sentence where a jaywalking ticket would have put me in jail for five years, and he moved his hands down my body ever so slightly on the sides as he patted me down and got to the cargo pocket of my cargo shorts, because obviously cargo shorts were a fucking thing back then, and he moved his hand right over that product, dude, and just kept fucking moving. And that was honestly like... I, I just had never been so scared in my entire life. It was the scariest thing that's ever fucking happened to me. I remember my legs were basically knocking together because I was so frightened of, of the idea that he was going to find this mass amount of product on me. And um, How did he not find it? I don't know. I, I, I don't know if he, if he was like a rookie cop where like he just was so eager to get out of this situation where they were there searching me. It was late at night. It was not the best area of New Haven. And, um, and he... He had searched the car. They found a wad of cash. I mean, they had everything they, sh- they needed to really exercise a solid search. And for whatever reason, he got lazy when he got to my body. And, and, and you know, the cargo pockets have a little bit of weight to them, right? And so even, even 35 bundles, all very tightly rubber banded and put into a Ziploc bag and folded into the bottom part of a cargo pocket may have have blended in with the bottom part of the stitch of a cargo pocket. And I, God bro, bless I mean, it. Dude, God bless the dude, cargo shorts. Dude, my favorite pair, piece of clothing of all time. Everybody hates on cargo shorts. I'm the biggest fan ever, bro. <laughs> totally. Anybody who's carrying drugs loved cargo shorts. You could put a bowl in the bottom pocket. You could put this in the other Anything. pocket. You, yeah, and then you didn't, I mean, like, I liked them because I was so scrubby, and I still am. I miss, I would still wear them. I don't even know where they are. The cargo shorts they sell nowadays <laughs> are just too short. I need the longer one. Can you still but get I'm, them? 
I don't know. I'm 46 years old. It doesn't really matter. Like, I'm kind of done. It doesn't really matter if I'm wearing cargo shorts or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, like, when I was buying heroin, like, I would buy, you know, maybe five bundles at a time, six bundles at a time, whatever. Once in a while, my dealer would be like, do you want to buy a gram? And I'd be like, they have grams of yeah, heroin? Yeah, yeah. Like, I was like, so when you talk about fucking fingers, break that down. Like, when did it get into that kind of uh, quantity, and what did it look like, and where were you going? Yeah, when I got to, when I got to New Haven uh, was when the heroin really started to pick up. So in... in Bridgeport, we were getting powder because they they would step on it first and just give us whatever the fuck they had, you know. And but we were getting de- we were getting decent weight. But by the time we got to New Haven, I mean the the dudes we were getting shit from there. I mean they were we were getting. I can't even imagine where this shit was coming from. Like it was it was actual rock heroin. Like like you would get a finger is. I, I, it's hard for me to show you show the listener obviously, but. Maybe about an inch of total height, and it literally looks like about the width of about two human fingers. And so it's wow. it's like a little rock of of extremely condensed heroin. And uh, you would you would put it on the scale; it would say ten grams. You would do the deal; you would walk away. And I had one guy that I would get them all from who ended up going fucking brazy and and went on some sort of robbing rampage, and I never heard from him again. But what would happen is you would get this rock. Uh, you know, 10 grams, you'd get 20 gram fingers, like whatever you wanted. And I would go and you would have to buy a pulsating coffee grinder. And I would go and I would drop this fucker because there's no other way to break it down. Literally, unless you had like a, a, a sledgehammer or something because it was so condensed. And so what you would do is you would go and I would, I would get a hotel room by myself. At this point, I didn't get, I, my friends were all addicts. I was the only, I was by myself. I was running my own show. I didn't give a fuck about anybody else. I would go and all I cared about at this point was this was probably 2008, 2009. The only thing I cared about at this point was selling. I wasn't, I don't even think I was using that much at this point. I still was obviously maintaining, but I was on methadone as well. So I didn't really have to use too much. I only cared about selling. And you would, you would take a, um, this rock and you would drop it into the, to the coffee grinder and you would pulse it and you would hear what sounded like gravel inside this coffee grinder and then slowly but surely it would start to puff out puff out puff out and before you know it you would dump it on the counter and there'd be this massive pile which you would then use like a, a a cut straw if you took a straw you would cut out the top of the straw and you would cut it in half until it turned into a little scooper so i might go to mcdonald's and then and get you a- made proper bags proper you made proper bags, like proper glassine bags. Yes. You fold it yourself. Yeah, and all so that. you would go to a bodega in New Haven and you would and they would sell you a brick of 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 wax bags. And you and I would sit there and for fucking hours I would just sit there and fucking weigh every single I, I mean I got so good at eyeing it after a while that I could weigh out a point one. Cause generally my generally my bags were um I think I was doing like was I doing point? I mean, maybe every bat, every bundle was about a gram or a point eight. So I was doing about point one bags. Uh, but the, I, that was the status quo, I think. Yeah, and so I can't even remember now because for any you know uh, anybody who cares listening to this, it's been twelve years since I did this stuff. Leave me alone. <laughs> um, I'm clapping. Or you know, a t- ten years since I got clean, obviously. But I, I, at the end of it, I was I had stopped dealing, so it's probably been about eleven years. But um, you know, you would sit there and you you. Bag all these bags up and and um, and then you would go to work, you know, and that, and that's what I would do. And I would drive around, I would take calls and do these window to window transactions that I described in the book at you know at end. Um, and uh, 
Yeah, I mean, it was it was all uh, it all seemed to make sense at the time, and like I said, obviously, it, it took me a while before I started to see how much you know I, how much pain I was causing, and how much pain you were in. Did you cut? Did you cut the dope with anything, or you just put no, it straight in the bag? No, I didn't cut. Sh- I never. It's one thing I actually I haven't bragged about because I haven't talked to a show of listeners that actually understand. But I never cut a product in my life. Never bought nice. a cutting agent in my entire fucking life. Did just didn't. I, I the same way I. <laughs> Once again, another lesson that I take from my time in that world, I always wanted to build and still want to build loved, powerful brands of premium products. I'm wearing a shirt right now that says Clocked In On It that is, is representative of my show, The Night Shift. This is printed on champion blanks. It has a champion patch on it. I could have gotten this shirt for cheaper and sold it for the same price and made more money. I was always the guy that didn't want to fucking cut the product. I, I would rather... Give it to people the way I got it and and create a brand of, of yo, this dude doesn't fuck around. He's not going to sell you bullshit. That's who I still that's a, I think that, that's a good lesson. Did you stamp it yourself? I did not stamp it. I, I didn't stamp it. Stamps stamps are... Uh, they could trace you back. Stamps, stamps are the easiest way to end up in prison for a long time. Stamps, right. stamps, are, stamps are horrible, dude. If it, you know, like I, 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 I hate. There's some things I don't even like to give away because, to be honest with you, like I don't, I don't want to empower any dealers out there. I wish, I wish, you know, that 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 whole landscape would go away. And I, I'm obviously ashamed for having taken part part in it. And obviously, like like you said, you know, I was in a ton of pain myself and did it to to support my own addiction. But at the same time, I still have massive regrets about that part of my life. Um, but yeah, I mean, no, I didn't stamp shit. There's no stamps. If I, if I sold stamp bags, it was cause I got them from somebody else. Do you, I mean like this is, I mean, and I kind of, maybe I'm like a little bit of a sociopath with this because like when I, and I, you know, I didn't deal crazy amounts of, uh, of drugs at all. I dealt very little drugs. I dealt a little bit of acid in college, you know, oh, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, I dealt a lot of weed in college, but I never was like major. I, I fucked up my family. You know, I fucked up my parents. I fucked up like. I had a baby and I was like basically addicted and I fucked up that family. Yeah. And I, you know, I managed to put the pieces back together and I don't feel like I live with much regret anymore. Do you get haunted by it still? No, no, absolutely not. I, I, I look, I know who I am as a person today. I know, you know, what I've been through and, and obviously like, listen, like I think there's a lot of times there's um, a, a relatively understandable uh, anger at the drug dealer that was selling drugs to for financial gain and taking advantage of addicts. I never, I, I honestly don't think I ever put a single dollar in the fucking bank as a result That's, of my deal. That was one of my questions. You know like, how saying? rich did you get? I off never of made dealing? a single fucking. Do- I never bought a car, a watch, a pair of clothes. The only thing I ever bought, and I'm using air quotes because I didn't buy it. I already had it. Was the the drugs that I was using? You know what I'm saying? And like even at the times where like. I say my addiction had started to curtail and I was selling more product. I still was, it was always falling into some form of addiction. I just would buy more Xanax pills or I would, or I would use the money that I was making on selling heroin to buy more cocaine or crack. And so, you know, like, you know, like as someone that, that, that's probably what makes me feel a little bit less regretful about the things that I did just because I was in a desperate period of my, uh, uh, the lowest period of my life, you know, and, and, I did what I did to, to make it through that, you know, and, and um, now I, I obviously try to do whatever I possibly can to, to, to make up and make amends for that, which includes the book, which includes, you know, helping people whenever I, whenever I get a chance, and I'll continue to do that. Right on, and, this, and it includes the stellar dopey appearance where Absolutely. you let it all hang out, man. Absolutely. So, like, 
What was I going to say? The one period of your life that I found really fascinating was the period where you lived in Bridgeport with Nikki. Like, that seemed like the craziest time. You were basically, like, in a bunker-style apartment or a house, right? And he rigged it up. So, like, there's night vision. There's a fucking battering ram on the door. Yeah. You've, got, you've got, like, all the white kids from suburban Connecticut going to your house to buy Coke and dope. It's like yeah. The Wire. So you know who you reminded me of when I read the book, okay? <laughs> when I read the book, you reminded me of Nick Sabatka yeah. from the second season of, of the, the Wire. Wire. Yeah, absolutely. But when I watched you on the show, I was like, Nick Sabatka is not that happy. Nick right. Sabatka is a miserable fucker. Right. But you're Nick Sabatka-esque in your dealing, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, dude, I, I mean, bro, that shit was fucking crazy, dude. So that was... That was probably in, uh, um, trying to think of the exact year. I was probably about 24 years old at this point. And this was when everybody had, when when Oxys got taken off the market, Purdue Pharma obviously made this massive push. Yo, we are in trouble, boys. We got to get these things fucking off the streets. Every, we're creating the biggest problem in the history of the fucking world here. You know, Sackler family obviously starting to panic. We got to get these fucking things off the street. So obviously everybody's, that was addicted made the switch over to heroin and at this point we found this uh group of of uh, uh puerto rican and and other hispanic dealers down in bridgeport that that were going to help us and and we found it through a, a family connection that you know got us an auto buying to this to this council in bridgeport and and for people listening you know bridgeport's the real fucking deal i mean it's the it real is. fucking deal it is Top, it's generally in the top 10 for most dangerous cities in the United States. There's murders every single fucking day. It is, the streets are lined with needles and condoms. It is, a, it is the real deal. And so as someone from suburban Milford, that transition wasn't, you know, in, instantaneous, but it wasn't hard either. I, I was quite a chameleon when it came to adapting to, to my new uh, in, environment. And it wasn't, an, it wasn't a safe place in Bridgeport. There's parts of Bridgeport that are good, parts of Bridgeport that, that are bad. And this place is this infamous area called The Hollow, which is, you know, um, just, just really well known for this type of activity. There's a housing project called The Greens in the area and Marina Village is right down the street. It's a very serious area. And so we started, you know, moving product out of this house and we turned it into a market for, you know, suburban white kids to kind of show up at all hours to come and get product from us. And, I mean, this dude, this dude had you know, built the, this, this, like you said, this bunker of night vision cameras on the front that were controlled by remote control car engines so they could sweep up and down the street. Great. There was, there was batter, battering, uh, ram proof, uh, uh, um, boards on the door so the battering ram couldn't get in on the first try. There was an escape route from the house through a, through an exit that was, that he dug out. Um, I mean, this was, this was the real fucking deal. And, and the people that supplied him were, the people that you watch on TV shows, like, like, bro, bro, like these dudes are the real, like the real fucking deal. Do not fucking say the wrong word. Cause you won't, you won't even be found. Your body won't get found literally. So, so, you know, as a 24 year old white kid dealing with these people, it was, it was, uh, it was a mind blowing experience. And, and obviously that, if, as you read that entire, um, empire collapsed under a DEA raid that, that took down the entire, uh, syndicate, uh, in, I, in, I believe, uh, 2000 and, and I believe it was either 2006 or 2007, something like that. 
that um, me and the guy who owned the house had gotten into a massive falling out because he was stealing my customers. He started running his own product to my customers behind my back. And so I left and quite literally within a month or so of me leaving, the, the, the DEA raided that house, his connects house, the, the, the uh, buildings that they had bought with the money as a result of the, the dealing uh, on these massive 5.30 a.m. masked up M16 DEA raids, just similar to what you see in movies once again. Um, and luckily I wasn't there. I wasn't at the house. And, and nor did they care. Nor did they care. They didn't want to talk to me. They didn't give a fuck about the white kids that were coming in for Milford. They were taking down the big, the big dogs. Dude, I mean, one thing you don't capture in the book, you can, I mean, I love this book, and Dopey Nation, if you want to read a crazy fucking amazing book about addiction, recovery, dealing, all this shit, get the fifth vital, amazing, but you don't really illustrate how lucky you were. I mean, dude, this fucking thing, the cop not finding the drugs in your pocket, like, the you were fucking the luckiest person. I mean, these stories, they blow my mind that you fucking made it. You know yeah, what I mean? yeah. I mean, I think I think for any addict who makes it out of that life, there right. is a certain there is a certain right. element of luck because it because the the default is one you're not gonna make it out. That's the default. But the but the secondary fallback default is if you do, it's gonna be with tremendous traumas that that are that are you know impossible to stop. And, and although I have a ton of those. Although, you know, my luck ran out at points and I, you know, had to, you know, go to get arrested here and have a felony charge here or break a fucking ankle or, or drive off a cliff. While I went through all those things, the luck that I had yeah. was so I, I, it's hard to it, the only way for me to look at it. And there's no other way to possibly look at it is that I was put here to tell a story to help other people. Right. That is the only way you could possibly look at it because to your point, I mean, some of the shit that I, that I skated around by a day or by a week or, or I wasn't at the house that night or a trigger actually got pulled and I missed it or whatever was mind fucking blowing, dude. Like, like that, that one in particular, I mean, like I said, I, I don't think we would have – a buddy of mine was at the house for that raid and they did – they cut him loose. They weren't there for the mid-levels. They, they wanted Nikki and, and Loki. Facts, facts. They wanted the big dogs, and, and they got them. And, and, well, and Loki wasn't there for it, but a different connect got, got popped as a result of it. But um, mind-blowing. And when I heard about that, it was like my heart dropped. I was like, I just spent the past year or two years at this fucking house every single day. And they, they, had, they had dedicated helicopter surveillance on the house for two weeks. right. I mean, they were flying choppers just for the fucking house. Like, now they probably would be using UAV support and drone support. I mean, it was that fucking serious, dude. You know what? You know what? The story that really caught my attention, and it just seemed like the craziest story, was the story, the New Year's Eve story, where you go to the hotel with your buddy and those girls. Crazy. You want to lay that story out, and then then we'll get to your recovery? Because that story is like bananas. 2008, um, you know, just another New Year's coming and going. We, you know, as, as addicts, we don't celebrate the same way as other people. There's no champagne. There's no, you know, like reaching out to your family and shit. You're, you're, you're looking for a hotel room and you're looking to get as fucked up as humanly possible, right? And, and so we, we got this hotel room in, in my hometown and, you know, um, we, we on this, at this hotel that's dropped back just a little from a very main road and, we were there, and this night we decided to like infuse a little bit of ecstasy to the planning, just because it was New Year's Eve, and so we popped a couple tabs of X, and 
you know, we, these girls are, 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 it's, you know, at this point in the night, we've been partying all night and it's probably about, you know, four or 5 a.m. at this point. We've been going, the girls are popping their fucking veins and shooting the blood onto the carpet at this point. Then no one even gave a fuck. And obviously, you know how, how it is as an addict. No, there's no common laws of decency. People are spitting on the walls, pissing in the fucking corner. It's a shit show. Yes. And, um, so I, I, as the powerful one, the person who paid for the hotel and the guy with the product and all that shit, I escape to the bedroom and I go, fuck all y'all, I'm going to sleep. Don't break anything because the room's in my name. So I go into the, I go into the bedroom and, and you know, I'm sleeping and now the, it's light out. So it's probably, you know, it's eight in the morning, nine in the, eight, probably, no, probably about seven or eight in the morning. The sun had just come up and my buddy comes in and he shakes me. He goes, yo, where's your, where's your fucking wallet? And at the time, I obviously always had these big wads of fucking cash on me. So I had my wallet with this wad of $3,000 in it, whatever amount of money. And I look over and I put my hand on the counter because it was still dark in the room, no wallet there. So I'm like, fuck. So I go to my buddy who was like my enforcer. I go, go down the stairs, get them. I go, where are they? He goes, they just left to go get them now. So I go, so I get on a robe. I walk, run downstairs. By the time I get downstairs, he's in the backseat of these two girls' car. And, and they're screaming already because he's in the car like, you motherfuckers, give us the money. I run out and I go nuts, dude. I go fucking nuts. I'm trying to punch through the window with my bare hands, smashing on it, smashing on it. Now they're fucking screaming. They're screaming. So they get in the car. They're driving down the street one way. I get in my Jeep and I'm driving behind them. So they're screaming down the road. I'm screaming after them 70, 80 miles an hour down the road. They do a U-turn, go the other way. I follow them. They do a U-turn, go the other way. I follow them. And we keep doing this cat and, cat and mouse chase. Eventually, I got sick of it, so I sped up in front of them, got in front of them at like 80 miles an hour, and mashed the fucking brakes as hard as I could. And they drove their car under the fucking Jeep. The Jeep was up, quite literally up in the air on top of their vehicle. So I had to drive off their car. I get out. The car's fucking smoking. I run up to the window. I'm punching the fucking window again. They're screaming. And, my butt, and I go, where's my fucking wallet, you motherfuckers? We don't have it. We don't have it. I, I looked at my buddy and his face had gone white. He goes, he goes, yo, look at their phone. I look on the phone. It says 911 on the phone. And they're like, ma'am, ma'am, are you still there? Are you still there? I'm like, fuck. So I go back and I, I, I tell my buddy to handle it. I got to get the fuck out of it. I go back to the room and I hide out. And I go, I go into the bathroom and I'm washing my face trying to regain composure. Because, you know, I just woke up from an ecstasy binge from doing heroin all night. I'm fucked up. It's 8 in the morning. I don't know what's going on. And I'm looking in the mirror and I pick up a towel to dry my face and there's my wallet under it. Uh. The wallet that they had stolen from me. But, so so immediately I'm like, fuck, I fucked up big time this time. <laughs> but no money in the wallet. So they had they had taken the wallet, they had, they had taken the money out of it and they left the wallet there. And so my buddy comes back to the room with a, about 50 or 60% of the money. They'd given him, given him a lot back. They took some. And there was always like this conjecture over whether he took some sure. of it or what exactly happened in that moment. So they go on their way, and three days later, I get a call from her, their mom, where's my daughter, where's my daughter, you're the last person she was with. And I said, lady, I have no fucking idea where your daughter is, I spent New Year's Eve with her, but I, but I, I have no idea where she is now. And it starts to turn into this missing person situation that has me speeding and punching her windows involved, and it's a disaster. So long story short, the cops get involved. I interview with the cops. They read me my Miranda rights. I tell them about this stolen wallet. I say, listen, if you want to arrest me, just give me a call. You know, you know, I'm going to, I'm not the kind of person to fight it. I'll come right to the police station. No problem. So they're like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever you want. 
I said, don't come to my mom's house, please. Please don't do it to me. They're like, we won't do that to you. Mike, we promise. We'll call you. You can come into the fucking office. We'll arrest you here. Four months later, four fucking months later, they show up at my mom's house at two in the morning, full squad of cop cars, lights on, blaring everything, not smashed on the fucking door. Milford, please come out with your fucking hands up. And ironically, I'm actually bagging up at the moment they came, which was the strangest fucking thing. In my house, very quietly with my mom upstairs. And so I, I pushed it all into the counter. They didn't even come into the house. They just pulled me out from the front door, cuffed me. And I get to the police station on this 19-charge indictment, which included like eight or nine felony charges. While I was already on five-year suspended sentence, the charges included... You know, unlawful restraint, which is basically a kidnapping charge in Connecticut, two counts, strangulation, assault and battery, interfering with a 911 call, vehicular, you know, malpractice, like just a fucking disaster. Everything. Everything. They threw the book at me. And all based on this idea that what the girls were telling in the story was true, which was that I assaulted them, I tried to strangle them, and all, all, all this bullshit. None of it was, none of it was true. Not, none of it. Besides punching the glass. and Besides and punching, the, punching the car. Going, I didn't even break yeah. the window. Okay. I didn't even yeah, break the you. fucking window. And so, and, and by the way, she crashed into me. Like, did I, did I slam on the brakes? Maybe. She crashed into me. Thank God she actually took the money. Dude, she, if, she, if she hadn't taken that money, you would have been... Just so disaster. In the first well, yeah. well, well. You you think that too, but also the re. So what happened was I go to court. I tell my lawyer. The lawyer's like, "Yo, you're gonna have to plea on this. You're you're up against a lot. Like you go to jail for 20, 25 years on this fucking shit." And I had a great you know Jewish lawyer in Connecticut, and everything was good. I I was able to pull enough money between the, some money that I scammed from a dealer and got money from my grandmother to pay the fucking lawyer and shit. So I had a decent lawyer, but he was telling me to cop out and take a plea, and I was going to. But every time the the um, like we were supposed to tell them what I was going to cop out to, the girls never showed up for the hearings, or they didn't take the phone calls because they were drug addicts. Perfect. And so and so I'm I'm like, yo, is this fucking real life right now? And so as we started to move on, it was like the day <laughs> it was like the day before I was going to cop my plea, and the fucking. My lawyer calls me and goes, I just got off the phone with, with the uh, district attorney in Milford at the courthouse, and the girls just got arrested for stealing, like, 30 people's credit cards. They're Perfect. going to fucking jail. And I'm like, okay, so so does that mean my story about them stealing from me is kind of validated now, and the fact that I was chasing them to get my property back makes this all okay, and they're probably lying about the rest of it, too? He goes, absolutely, you're going to cop out to a third-degree threatening charge. Amazing. Which is what I copped out to, and I and I and I and rightfully I won the situation because I, I they stole my shit, dude. You know, and I was rightfully pissed off, and I didn't break any laws per se, but um, messy, messy situation. But again, the luck in that situation, the fact that they didn't go to your room when you're bagging up the drugs when they take you out of the house, yeah. The fact that these girls, these women, were ridiculous felons robbing and stealing everywhere. It's yeah. just, it's another amazing example of the luck. I know this is going way longer, but it's way better than I had hoped it would be. I need to make it work. No, because, because listen, we're, we're doing a little uh, uh, um, halftime right now for those listening. Uh, I, I want, I'm excited to be on the show because this is the first time that I've ever told this story and gotten into this detail with people who truly understand what I'm fucking talking about. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, generally, I'm telling the story to a group of people who are like yo this is a cool story but but the majority of them don't understand and they're just like you're crazy whereas the dopey nation is crazy like you are you facts, know what i mean like we're, we are like we get it and um and i know they're gonna a lot of people in the dopey nation are gonna love this story i mean just 
you, your yeah. story. It's a powerful story, and, and it, I mean, you go to some crazy places, but I felt like the end, you know, like when you finally were like, I don't want to do this anymore was a heartbreaking one. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. My rock bottom. My, my yeah, actual, yeah, yeah. And, and, and Mike, basically Mike's family had given up on him, and, and basically, and Mike's grandfather, oh, you tell it, I don't want to Yeah, I mean, I mean, basically, no, it. I don't think you would. I'm sure you'd do a great job. <clears throat> basically what happened was my, my, my family gave up on me but also kind of never did, which is the, one of the biggest blessings I was ever given in this life. They, they always were just hoping against hope that I would pull it together. And <clears throat> my, my mom, at the same time that I was at this kind of rock bottom, she was dealing with her own, you know, tragic situation. Was that with with the fact that her her father, her best friend in the world, had been diagnosed with Parkinson's and uh, Parkinson's dementia. He had bouts with cancer. Just an absolute uh, horrible situation. He was a World War II veteran. Uh, we called him Pop Op. And um, in my addiction, I had grown completely away from him. He 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 actually, in a lot of ways, despised what I did to my mother and and, and did to my family. But in, in his final days, my mother looked to me for help, and she, she was losing control of his, the situation with him. She was still trying to work a job as a single mom to continue to you know pay for this and pay for that. And she asked me, hey, listen, is there any chance you would, you would want to or be able to <clears throat> move in with your grandfather and keep it together enough to take care of him you know, as, as instead of us putting him into a home? He's going to die in a home. Like, he's going to die there. He won't, he won't make it. We, we want to keep him in his house for his last days. And I... And, I had done so much to hurt my mom that I agreed to it at first bef- bef- before I got clean. I was still using and I, and I was like, you know, I'm going to try with everything in me to stay clean so that I can take care of my grandfather. And I was there and I had these little bouts of success with that and I was on the methadone maintenance and everything would go well at times. <clears throat> and then I fell into my final bout uh, in the drug world uh, with crack cocaine, and it, and it, it devastated me. It, 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 it dropped me to my fucking knees harder than anything you know, I'd ever seen before. It was, it was all-consuming and it, the most disgusting drug. I'd ne- I never did meth, so I can't speak to meth, but probably the most disgusting drug that I ever <clears throat> took part in doing, just an absolute um, environment of just terror, just absolute terror and, and stress and, and just the worst fucking thing. And... Um, I tried really, really hard to, to kind of manage my, my, my dying grandfather and his needs and his meals and him, you know, not going into the, him not being able to make it to the bathroom while I also struggled to deal with my own addiction to crack cocaine. And there was one day where um, he had gotten into his recliner and he was wrapped up in his blankets too tightly and I was, I was up in the attic getting high on, on crack and blowing this nasty fucking crack smoke out the window. And uh, I heard my grandfather calling from downstairs, please help me, these crying, in this crying mm. voice, please, please help me, help me, please, I can't get out. And uh, I was so paranoid and so just <clears throat> flattened by this fear that exists when you're in that world that I was unable to go down and help him. And so I had to listen to that from the attic for you know, an hour of him just crying out for help as I sat there fucking grinding my teeth in the fucking corner, like holding my head fucking, you know, basically uh, crying to myself, like, you know, um, in this terror before I was able to go down and help him. And it was like a, it was like a form of torture. I mean, I, I, it's, it's something that like, I, I just still like, it's something that like, I can't really, um, 
let go of that idea that that happened, you know, and it's, it's one of the traumas that I, that I carry with me now. And, um, that was kind of, that was kind of my bottom where I just said to myself, like, I, I, I don't know how much more of this I could take. Like I'm going to die. Right. But it's still, I mean, like, and the thing about that, that's the kind of shit that keeps somebody clean. That's the kind of shit that like, you don't go back for more. You know what I mean? You know, like the doors you opened up and the hallways you walked down. But, but another thing, like that was your, your emotional bottom. You know what I mean? Like, it was, it, but from what I understand from reading and paying a little bit of attention, like it was that PO or that that, uh, that yeah. counselor who was just like, "You're not fucking playing with me. You're gonna go to jail or you're gonna do this, right?" Yeah. And that was yeah. really the fucking turning point, right? Yeah, because it still wasn't enough. It still wasn't enough. The emotional bottom. Enough. I know the emotional bottom still wasn't enough, and I wanted. Listen, I wanted to quit. I wanted to stop. I really fucking did. I just, I just couldn't do it. And um, I had this, this, uh, this probation officer by the name of Ellen Ferrari uh, in in Milford, Connecticut. And I still need to fucking contact this lady to thank her because she probably saved my fucking life. Dude, but, dude. But, after this interview, take a second because you're the probably the most successful client she's ever had. Absolutely. Oh and no, without you, a shadow of a doubt. And, and if you reach out to her you're going to feel good and she's going to be like holy shit it's that guy he's alive and he's doing well you know like fucking <laughs> she's got to she's got to know she's got to know already but i should i will i do will it. do it dave i will reach out to her i promise you i will i will do it after this i'll find her if, whether it's on facebook or just calling yeah. her but but um she she i had you know had what? These- fuck that fuck that save it for either impulsive or the night shift that'll be the most killer fucking show you ever do yeah that's it true would, or we call her first and plan it with her because that yeah, would be a killer fucking show. I know, show. I know. I you listen. She, she. Um, I had a bunch of la- relatively lax probation officers. Basically, what happened was when I was on probation, I was also on the methadone maintenance. Mm-hmm. And so, basically, what they what they say in in probation or, or their thoughts on it is, okay, this kid's in some sort of treatment. He's in treatment, so they're clearly going to be managing his his use and what he's doing over there at the methadone maintenance program. The only problem is the methadone maintenance program doesn't give a fuck what you're doing. They just want the money from your insurance company. So I was popping every fucking day at the methadone crack, fuck it, or a co- at the time it was cocaine, Xanax, benzos, clodopin, obviously all that shit, marijuana, yeah. everything. And they didn't give a fuck. They were like, did his insurance check out? Perfect. Keep it, keep it going. Give him more. Give him more. Just give, give him, him more. more. Yeah. That's yeah. what they would say. That's what they say. Yeah. Well, you're, you, you keep popping for heroin and you're on 80 milligrams. Why don't you go to a hundred and see if that helps you? Yeah. Okay. That's going to fucking help. Right. What was your highest dose on the clinic? I got to maybe like a buck 20. I had friends, I had friends that were up around. Uh, that would go to the max, which is about 160 in Connecticut. So they would hang out around 160. I was never the method, methadone zombie. I, 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 my general dose was between 70 and 80, which is where I hung out. Um, and and, I, and I'd like to d- talk about that for a hot second in a, in a minute. But I had these really lax probation officers. And um, so they would be like, oh, well, he's on the program. So if he's coming up dirty, like they'll handle it. He's working on it, right? One day they tell me, oh, your probation officer is changing. You have a new probation officer. So I went and I met her. The first day I met her, she gave me a urine test. And, she, and, and uh, you know, three days later she called me and said, hey, Mike, you know, just checking in with you. Just wanted to let you know, uh, you know, your, your urine test came back positive for, for uh, you know, cocaine, benzos, and, and heroin. And I said, oh, well, oh, yeah, like, I'm so sorry. Like, I had a slip up. Like, it won't, you know, I'll, I'll work on it. I'll try to make it happen again. And I just met her, so I thought she was going to be like, oh, well, okay, like, he's working on it, you know, like all the other ones had. And she goes, okay, Mike, you know, that's not really how it works with me. 
So you're going to come back in at your next. Uh, uh, no, no, no. So she said, I said, I want to come back and pee again. And she said, okay. And so I came back and I peed again and it came back dirty again. And she called me back after that one. And she said to me, okay, listen, your test is dirty again. Tomorrow morning, you're going to give me an answer. You're either going to go to detox and you're going to go check into a detoxification program and, and get clean, or you're going to do your five year suspended sentence. And I said, no, 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 no. I had a mess up. It's okay. Everything's good. Like, like I, I just, I fucked up I have some trouble at home going on right now. And she said, Mike, stop talking, stop talking. And I said, and then I noticed her tone was getting kind of just staying relaxed. I was like, who are you to fucking tell me? I have a problem at home. I'm going to, I'm going to fix it. I'll be again. Next time it'll be fucking clean. I want to retest. Are you done? Mike, are you done? Tomorrow, you're going to tell me whether you're going to detox or going to jail. Those are your choices. And I, and, and, and she, I look forward to your call tomorrow at 10 a.m. And she hung up the fucking phone. And she's I was talented. like, Ellen is a ta- she's a talented fucking woman. Talented, you know what I mean? Bro. She, she took you to where you needed to go. You dope fiend her. You gave her every entitled 25 year old piece of <laughs> bullshit. And she was just like, fuck you. This is how it is. You know what Amazing, I mean? Amazing, bro. Amazing. 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 And so I, and so obviously when the choice came to either a five year suspended sentence or a, a stint in detox and then re- followed up by rehab, there's no choice there. That's not a decision. No, nobody's going to be like, okay, I'll take the jail, you know? And so the next day I, I went and I checked in at SCRC, uh, um, detoxification unit, New Haven, Connecticut, shout out SCRC. And, uh, I, I did five days there, got out within, you know, a, a, a couple days of getting out from there. And I don't remember, I don't recommend the pause in between to anybody. If you're going to detox, leave from detox, go to rehab. Yes. I had a little pause in between. Um, and, uh, had some decision-making on my own to make. And I ended up at a place called CVH, Connecticut Valley Hospital in, uh, I believe Middletown, Connecticut. I was there for about 35 days, came out, never used drugs again. And, and, um, uh, I don't know that that's the story. I don't know what you want to ask about it, but that's how I, <laughs> that's, that's crazy. I mean, yeah, it's like, it's on. very, 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 very unusual. For so a 25 unusual. year old addict with your kind of credentials to walk out of uh, a hospital. How long were you in the hospital for? So I, so I was, it, it's a 45 day treatment center and I caused enough trouble right. in that rehab uh, center to be, to be basically forcibly, but successfully discharged in 31 days. Wow. And so, um, and so, yeah, that I, I entered it in, in very early July, uh, 2010, walked out some point at some point in very early August and, uh, and never looked back. And then it was, it was just off to the races from there. 90 meetings in 90 days, in the NA program did a little, did a little stint for six months in NA and NA and then, uh, and then actually left that as well. And, and I took what I could from the program, beautiful program, loved the idea of it. Um, uh, you know, to anybody out there finding success in that program, congratulations to you and to everybody that runs that program and has sponsors in that program and, uh, or sponsees, I'm sorry, and runs meetings. So much respect for those people, like endless, endless fucking respect. I replaced my addiction and, and found a higher calling, uh, in other places. Yeah. Found you found purpose. Places. You found purpose yeah. in your ambition. Yep. Um, now, I mean, like, because there's a lot of studies. Like, I got clean in 12-step, but I was 41 years old. You know what I mean? Yep, I wasn't 25 yep. years old. I kept fucking up. I went to treatment. I'd come out. I'd fuck up. I went to treatment. I'd come out. I'd fuck up. Years would go by. Like, I didn't have your story. By the time that I finally got clean, I just needed somebody to be like, this is how you build a table. 
do this and you won't fucking fuck up your life. You didn't have that experience. You got out of it. And that's another thing. Like, I always, like, tell people that 12-step recovery saved my life. But, of course, it's not the only way. You know what I mean? Like, of course it's not. And we, like, started this whole, like, idea on Dopey. And we started a little movement called the alt-recovery movement. And what the alt-recovery movement says is whatever you could do to get your life better, congratulations, man. You know what I'm saying? I mean... Yeah, of course. And I, and I, like, honestly, the program, the one thing I didn't love about the program, but I do love, it's like such a, a double edged sword, is they were very adamant against creating your own system. You're not in, you know, AA and NA tell you, yo, listen, like, this is the fucking route to success. Either you like it or you don't, but if you don't like it, you're not going to get clean. It was basically like that kind of setup, like, yo, like, the addict that creates their own program is not gonna, it's not gonna be successful, right? Well, the, the funny thing is, though, it's like, it's like, and usually they don't, you know what I they mean? They don't, but they're right, are, they're yeah, right, yeah. I know, and so that's why, and so that's why I don't, that's why I'm not mad about that, I'm not upset with them, because they're t- statistically right about it, but I have, but I also believe that as the world cha- continues to change, and we, and our appetites, and our attention spans, and how we consume content, and all that stuff changes, I believe there's some sort of, you know, whether it's a revamp, or whether it's a rethinking of a lot of those practices because the things that the things that I found success in that made me not want to go back to drugs was was business success and career success and being a successful person and understanding that that is a drug of its own and feeling that that power and that happiness that comes out of completing projects and getting paid a, a real paycheck and all of those kind of things um, I also found it through exercise through very intense and rigorous cardiovascular exercise, which I, which I recommend so fucking heavily to the to people currently struggling or people who have just gotten clean and refreshed in recovery, riding a road bike changed my fucking life, bro. Changed my life. I came out of this is we won't even get to this story today, and I'd love to come back on another time and talk about it. But when I got out of rehab, I weighed close to three hundred pounds. I was I was obese, morbidly obese. And I'm 6'2", so it wasn't great, like horrible, but it was bad. I got you. And and so I had to go through a a, a a whole period of trying to shed that weight, and I lost a hundred pounds in early recovery through cycling and 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 eating better. I was eating four fast food meals a day, and then I started eating grilled chicken and broccoli, and I started riding the bike, and I found a tremendous tremendous amount of joy in that exercise and how much it helped clear my mind and lube my brain to get out of that negative thought cycle that led me back to drugs. Because listen, whether, you know, the fact of the matter is I went to detox one time, I went to rehab one time and I got clean. I tried to get clean 15,000 times before that. Like, don't be, don't be fooled by the fucking story. The, the, the medical world got me to get it done the first time and I did the right things post and everything worked out. This was not some fun story. I was an addict for fucking a decade, dude. You know what I'm saying? And like, I tried all yeah. hardcore, and yeah. I tried all the fucking time. When my mom would cry to me, beg me, please, please, I don't want to get that phone call that you were found in a fucking gutter. You're breaking my heart. Please, please stop. I would try. I would try for a week, and I would get drawn drawn back. So whether you know, like, don't don't you know? I, I know you're not, but I, I don't want anyone to discount the fact that I made it in one in one try Nobody, medically. No, no, our audience yeah. is very accepting, and there's a shitload of people. No, 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 no. I know that. I know that. Don't know even that. don't even think about that. But it's like, it's interesting. You know what I mean? Like you, but we just had a writer on the show, a guy called Johan Hari. He's a journalist and a writer. He writes about addiction and depression, and and his kind of take 
for, he has two takes. The first one is that sobriety isn't the opposite of addiction. Connection is. So, like, and that's something that played for you, the connections you were making. And the other thing he was talking about was purpose. Giving an addict a purpose is, like, the greatest gift you can give Oh, them. my God. And that's dude. what you found. Oh, my God. E- either a purpose or a collection of micro-purposes. Right. Like, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, like maybe not everybody's going to find that one meaningful thing that they want to do for the rest of their life. But when I started to find these things that made me feel good... So road cycling and I, my first bike was a hand-me-down Schwinn it was a mountain bike it was a piece of fucking shit that I found in the garage I was riding it for like 50 at first I would ride it for like a mile and I would almost die near the end of it I, I was on a Cannondale road bike riding 100 miles at a fucking time and that the dump of endorphins and, and serotonin that cardiovascular exercise gave me that was better than any drug I've ever fucking done before was one of my micro victories was one of my micro purposes. And then I fell in love with career and I fell in love with the brand world and I fell in love with building businesses and, and all, and making my mom happy. And, and, you know, I, I, when, when will this podcast come out? I bet next week I'm doing, I don't even want to say this. You, maybe you report back on it in the, in the, in the future, but I'm doing, going to do something in the next week. That's going to be, one of the proudest moments of my life for someone in my life. And so I'm really excited about that. And you'll, you'll see it on the, on my show for sure. And so you'll know about it. Maybe you could report back to the listeners after, but, but like doing things for your family, like became a micro. Do you want me to wait? Victory. Do you want me to hold this back? Tell no, me. No, you no, 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 no. I just didn't, I just didn't want to get too into it because I didn't know if like that person might hear it or whatever. So, but, it, but we didn't talk about it at all. It's fine. Um, and so like, and so like it's, 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 those things like making other people in your life that helped you your whole life happy becomes a micro purpose and a reason not to go back. Which is and all, so it's like, and it's all built into 12 step also. It's like the idea of doing service. It's not being self-centered. It's 100%. looking out for the next person. And, and, 100%. and the fancy part of your story, you know, cause we didn't even, t- I mean like your whole world is around, you know, multi-million dollar deals and multi-million views and, and just like crazy thing. Basically, I'm going to fast forward for a second just because, you know, what the fuck. Um, Mike wound (laughs) up working in marketing, and he's, like, obviously this genius with brands and brand awareness, and I need you to help me with Dopey, but we'll get to that eventually. But um, fucking (laughs) fucking, he wound up working at a place in Connecticut called The Love Sack, which, like, basically, and I love the story. Like, you guys have to read his book. But basically, some dude, what's his name? The Lawrence. Sean Sean Nelson. Sean Nelson. Nelson. Thank you for fucking me. Yeah. Uh, Sean Nelson takes him out for a steak salad. And gives him a job, and it changed your life. Changed my life forever. Sean, Sean I, I met Sean through through a Craigslist ad. He put a Craigslist ad out basically that said, you know, he was looking for this specialist to help him grow his social channels. And and I, one of my biggest lessons to everyone listening to this or, or in my book is fake it till you make it. We've heard it a million times. But I mean really live that fucking life, especially in your early recovery as you start to build this career that will give you happiness and purpose. And... You know, I got on the phone with them and I was like, yeah, I've got this, you know, track record of building brand awareness and social media channels. And I had started to do a little social. There was there was some truth in it, but I definitely built it up a little bit more. And I met him and he was immediately, you know, kind of captivated by my ability to speak and, and you know, my my uh, passion for for what he was building, which was this new furniture company. And I and he you know, he gave me the opportunity of a lifetime to join this brand and uh, I worked for Lovesack for, for, you know, at first as a specialist and then I grew through the ranks to become a marketing manager and eventually took the company public and rang the bell on NASDAQ with them. 
And through Love Sack, I met Logan Paul, who was looking for this oversized beanbag chair for his house. And wasn't he like, that, wasn't he like, yo, could I fuck on a Love Sack? Wasn't that yeah. like the beginning of your friendship right there? Yeah, his first text to me was, uh, "Hey man, can you fuck on these things?" And and it, for people who don't know, Love Sack makes these giant oversized beanbag chairs that are really popular in the in culture and in music and movies. And my daughter, um, my daughter just made me buy her a Yoji bow. You know? No, about that's bull. I know. Yeah, I fucking bought her the Yoji complete- bow. That's complete bullshit, dude. He, uh, you, I, hold on one second. No, no, no Yogi Bows. No Yogi Bows. No, it's, it's I know. I would have got you I a huge, already got I got you a huge discount too. We'll get you, we'll get you one. Don't worry about it. But yeah, no, you're, you're fine. But, but, but he, so he reached out to me asking about one cause he wanted one and I, and uh, he was like, yeah, can, can I fuck on these things? And I said, and he was expecting a marketing answer from it. And I gave him a human answer to it was, yeah, the covers are washable. So the cum will wash right out. And he found that so funny. And he right. was like, wow, this dude seems like kind of a cool cat. And that led to us, you know, doing some brand deals together. Hang, you know, we met eventually at, down at Travis Pastrana's house, X Games, you know, gold medalist, um, with Roman Atwood as well, another YouTuber. And we struck up a friendship, with, which eventually led to, you know, us hanging out more and more. And then finally, at, in the end of it, you know, I left uh, Lovesack, joined Logan, we started a podcast, which which is super popular now. And for people who don't know, Logan is a, a you know the largest YouTuber, basically the biggest YouTuber in the world. He's a very controversial, very controversial figure, yep. though. I know I'm going to get heat. Like, what makes him so con? I mean, I know this the story in Japan. He went to some forest and he saw some dude who who had who had committed suicide, and he yep. nervously laughed. And that, I mean, I guess it's because he's cocky so, that he's controversial. People hate him because so the he's old cocky. Logan Paul is 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 cocky and controversial. Is, is very cocky. He was very douchey. He was very like the athletic quarterback guy that you had to just fucking hate. But he, but he, but he, right. you know, he was also, you know, childish and had a good time and, and uh, uh, was very, uh, the, the child audience was very fond of him on YouTube. He was, he was lovable. lovable. He was lovable and he was and good he was looking good and the looking. kids loved him and he amassed this massive fucking audience and was doing these brand deals and working with Kevin Hart and in 2017 he made almost $35 million in 2017 off clothing that, alone. Crazy, crazy, that's crazy, crazy. And so, yeah. um, you know, and. Then t- I had become friends with him right around that time in like 2017 at its at its peak, and then in tw- and the first day of 2018, this Tokyo scandal happens and everything crashes around him. And you know he he over the next year he looked to me as kind of a big brother and as a brand repairman to help him fix this struggling brand and to rebrand him, not just to not make any more mistakes, but to rebrand him. And when it when it came time to infuse culture and what's cool and that kind of stuff, I, I hate to say it, dude, but a lot of the people I know that made it through addiction are cool fucking people, bro. They've listened to really cool music. They've seen a lot. They've dealt with a lot. They've they've been cultured in this amazing way, and so I was able to apply a lot of that learning from the past and more so the learnings of how to get through intense, intense struggles. And how to keep your head on straight when the entire world is gunning for your fucking head. And so I gave him a lot of that and we became closer and closer and I helped him rebrand and rebuild. And he came out on the on the ass end of that, on the backside of it, with a with a massive comeback in the end of 2019. And our biggest year in 2020 as we continue to plow out through with this podcast, his YouTube channel is now recovered completely. He's now the biggest person on YouTube, one of the biggest people on YouTube again. And now me. I've somehow become one of the biggest people on. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there up. too, and so I'm right. We're neck and neck. I mean, I'll get. I mean, we the way we are in the industry, we look at the numbers 
of what we get from a viewership standpoint per video as like, oh, like this video only got like three and a half million views and we and we cry about it. We, we tell each other like, what did we do wrong? That that is the scope, the scope, the scope that I operate on. You would just. But, but so no, 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 no. If for, you looked at me, if you looked at me, no, looking forget at my that. Forget that. That's not what I'm, I'm talking about. What I'm what I'm saying, what I'm talking about that's crazy is that the, those numbers make the Kardashians numbers look like peanuts. Those, bro, like, people don't get it. People don't get it. Like, the Kardashians, if they are lucky, will get 800,000 people watching an episode. He, he has an episode with my girlfriend that he put out uh, four months ago that has 16 million views on it, dude. Bananas. Bananas, bro. And if you didn't know Dopey Nation, uh, Mike's girlfriend is, was the number one uh, adult film star in the world, Lana Rhodes. There's a reason why she, she you know, commanded that top spot and still holds it three years after she retired. I mean, it's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. She hasn't shot a, a scene, a pro- professional porn scene in over three years. But, I mean, honestly, this could be a whole fucking episode in its own. I mean, Logan introduced me to her on my birthday. It's January 13th as a joke. And I obviously looked at her the same way the entire rest of the world does as this absolute monster in the bedroom, just does all this crazy shit. And she's absolutely stunning to look at. One of the most beautiful fucking women in the entire world, craziest ass and her eyes are mesmerizing. And I didn't, and I, I looked at it as a, as a, um, Conquest. a gig, a gig. Yeah. Well, well, so I had already been playing in the industry as a lot. I had already had sex with Riley Reed. I'd had sex with all of the other big actresses because I, I kind of, you know, I, the addict in me, I guess, or like the, more so the wild person in me. As soon as I got to L.A., I started hanging out with that group. And, and by the way, they're all great. These girls are absolutely incredible. They're the most down to earth, like like it, it, it t- the detachment that exists between the craft that they that they take part in and what they are like in real life is mind blowing. I mean, they're just like any other average everyday girl, but usually even cooler. They're right. cool ass girls. They play the guitar. They listen to music. They've got booming businesses. They drive Lamborghinis. Or they're awesome people. They're not not that driving a Lamborghini makes you awesome, but you know they've got cool stuff going on, right? I'll tell you when I watch you guys like on these videos, it's so obvious like your guys love for each other. Like it's very sweet to see. It's, uh, it's very easy to see. You yes. know, and and that's just super sweet. Is it? Do you? I mean, I know I would freak out just because I'm jealous and 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 insecure and crazy. Does that shit? ever get to you or it never got to you or like how do you deal with it yeah so i mean so so one, once once we met and we we started to to talk i realized yo this girl is incredible right she's just such an incredible and sweet girl and super supportive she immediately started trying to help me how can i help you how can i do this how can i do that you could tell how much she loves bro you. So oh obvious. my god yeah. dude and yeah. fr- immediately like she fell in, and it took me a while to reciprocate it took me a long time like i was very much like yo it's not gonna be that kind of relationship and she pushed and pushed and honestly like i always was enamored by her but it it took me a while before I said I love you to her, right? And um, so, so did I ever feel weird about it or 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 strange about what she had done in the past? All right, so there's multi, multiple parts of that answer. As someone who has done things in my past that make the things that she has done in her past look like absolute vacation child's right. play, right? It probably takes a certain person to be okay with what their significant other did. And so and so whenever anybody was like, yeah, but did you see what she did? I'm like, dude, you have no fucking idea. Like, like, bro, she so I talk about this a lot. She worked exclusively with other male talent in the industry who uh, about I think she worked with a total of about 
20 or 30 different guys who were tested every couple weeks. She did some horrible shit with them. Don't get me wrong. Some really nasty fucking shit. It does, it's not horrible. Well, some I, of it, it, some of it she got. Now, listen, the, the, the industry is also terrible. The industry's terrible. There was a lot of stuff that she did that she was not comfortable doing that she was pushed to do by agents, by companies, which, you know, Mia Khalifa is talking a lot of, uh, uh, out of, yeah, about yeah, a lot yeah. of this stuff right now. But did she do some pretty nasty shit? Yes. And she's and she hates it. She hates that she did the stuff. She's not ashamed of it, but she wishes she had got it done in a different way. Whatever. So she has some regrets. And so that that was part one of it. And so like obviously my past mirroring her past, I was having this trauma that we're not ashamed we're not ashamed of. But you know, yeah, ideally some of the shit we did wouldn't have happened. Was one thing that protects me. But also the other thing is, and by the way, also I should say this, adult adult work is nothing to be ashamed of. She, she, my, my girlfriend wishes she had done less of the stuff that she didn't want to do, but also like, it's a job like any other job. There's a lot of women who do that for whatever reason, and it's a job to them. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to shame them. But what I will say is the reason why me and Lana or Amara, her real name work is because she's retired. She's retired. She, she had a, a, a actual marriage. She just got out of a divorce where she was very, very inclusive. She wasn't cheating. She's the most loyal, dedicated person. Does she have a password that seems impossible? Absolutely. But when I tell you that this girl is absolutely obsessed and, and, and the most loving, supportive, and just sweetest down-to-earth girl, which you can see in the videos, it's just the fact of the matter. And so the, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is – what are you willing as a person to accept about someone else's past and then overlook it and give them a second chance at life? You know, which I, is what you got. Which 100%. is what you got. And um, and I think it's you guys are like refugees who found each other. It's a beautiful story. Um, I love that. I love that way of looking. <laughs> there's one fucked up question. It's a, there's my last controversial question. Sure. And definitely, dude. You want to come back on? You come back on. I'd love to. I'd love to. I ha- I have to tack on after the show, like. I'm going to read some emails from the listeners. If you want to get involved with that at another time, I would love to have you do it. This has been a a joy for me. But here's the controversial question. Everyone says I throw softballs in my interviews. (laughs) Here's the controversial question. When you got clean, you, you you got off heroin, you got off methadone, you got off coke, you got off pills, you stopped doing drugs, but you start, you drank here and there, you know? And so... In the end of your book, you're, I mean, you're honest with about it throughout the book. Yep, you, yep. You, you totally let it all fly. At the end of the book, you say, January 2020, I'm making a commitment not to drink alcohol anymore. Yep. So how did it go? We're in, uh, we're in fucking June. January, how are you doing? Since, Jan- since New Year's Eve 2019, I have ha- not had a sip of alcohol. I've been oh, completely... Co- thank you. <laughs> I've been completely, completely dry uh, for 2020, and... Yeah, so so it, it is a, it's it is a controversial question, especially for people who take recovery so fucking seriously. And it's it's throughout the entire course of my recovery, I went back and forth on it. Did I ever fall into a point where I was drinking like a ton and drinking all the time and get, letting it get away from me and 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 partying, you know, to a point where I, I was putting myself at risk? Absolutely not. There was never a single point where it affected me. Alcohol was I, this, this. I have to be very cautious with this because I am not recommending. I'm not condoning. People who are in recovery, people who are clean should not fuck with alcohol or drugs, whatever they are, that could push them towards using drugs again, right? It's, it's the most, or, or, it's dangerous. or, or it's dangerous. towards, yes, or towards overusing that drug, towards alcoholism. For me, particularly, alcohol was never a drug that I particularly liked all that much. I, I, I fell into a habit of doing it with other people to feel more comfortable in social settings, all that kind of shit. 
What I slowly realized was that, and, and by the way, this is the reason why I didn't pick up a 10-year coin. It's the reason why I haven't claimed to be sober. I, you know, people claim that I'm sober for me. I don't, I, I, I claim clean. I've been clean of opiates and, and narcotics for, for 10 years now. Because you know the deal and you don't want to belittle it. And you don't want, you also know that now that you're actually off of alcohol, you can claim everything. Yes, is now that why I'm, you yes, did it? Yeah. Well, no. So, so what happened was I got to a point where I realized that even those two beers a week or whatever it was, or a glass of wine at dinner or whatever it was, was having a negative impact on my fucking life. It would, it would slow me down for a day or two after I would, I would, you know, I would, uh, um, not be as effective in the gym or as effective in business or on the podcast. I was, I was, it was eating at me. It was making me, a, a, I was sloshy. I was slow. I wasn't as, as good as I could be. And so I made the decision to technically, the only thing I've made the decision to do at the beginning of this year was to make it one year sober from alcohol. So technically I have this opening at the end of the year to go back, but something tells me I'm probably never going to drink again. Well, because Mike, I, the, I, the, the, tr- the truth is, though, you have an opening every minute of every day. Absolutely. You can do whatever the absolutely. fuck you want. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. You want to drink, get drunk tonight? You want to shoot dope tonight? You want to fucking do anything? You know, people are like, I can never do that again. The truth is you can do whatever the hell whatever you want. Whatever you want. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, like, I, I, I admire your commitment, and you're going to figure out, like, what's good for you, man. Like, uh, it was a, a total dream to have you on, man. Like, I really appreciate you coming on and being so honest. And I had a feeling that you'd enjoy it. You know I loved I mean? it, bro. It, it's just been it's just been amazing. Like I said in our little halftime, it's just been amazing to talk with someone who gets it. Jay Z said in a song, uh, "There's a percentage of people who don't understand, a percentage of people who do. Which percentage are you?" And it's a it's a it's a verse that always stru- stuck with me because when I wrote the book, I was like, "Damn, dude! Like, who's gonna even understand what any of this shit means?" So I kept it a little bit more high level high level. But it's been a pleasure to to, to jump into the weeds with somebody who gets it. Well, we get into the, you know, it's like that grimy place is like a place that's very comfortable. And like we wouldn't have done it if we didn't like it. You know what I mean? That's the weirdest part. Um, Two more questions and I'll leave you alone. Okay. When when you have to deal with, uh, because obviously you and Logan are are close. uh, Do you ever feel like he doesn't get it or like that's a weird alien situation? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I talk about that in the book a lot too. I mean, there's so many times where I... That and that was the power of NA and AA for so long is is like it was people that truly get it and that's one of the things I deal with here is just relatability. It's uh, it, it, not just him, but it's, it it usually manifests itself in like any time like a person is complaining to me about something that's so drastically wrong with their life. I think now that the book came out, they they they'll get five minutes into their spiel and then they'll look at me at my blank face like somebody that's like. My personal chef is giving me so much fucking trouble. This motherfucker wants an extra day off per week and they look at my face and I'm sitting there like, you done yet? Are you done yet, dude? Like, like the, the, the relatability is something that I do miss from meetings, which is why it's so nice to talk to you and to talk to your audience because I could actually get into stuff that makes sense. But yeah, absolutely. We have those moments where, you know, it just, shit just doesn't make sense to them, you know? Do you have a personal chef? We do. We do. <laughs> so there you go. What happens when your personal chef doesn't make what you want? You get pissed? <laughs> I never get mad about any – bro, this – me laughing is me 24-7 because, yo, it, I, it's so – and, like, I, obviously it's not for everybody. But it's been so hard for me to complain. It's Like, not even just now. I mean when I first even got clean and I had a bike to ride and a, a bed to sleep in and a meal to eat. I was like, yo, this is crazy, bro, because after – it took me about six months – before I really started to get my clarity back 
And I was like, how could I ever not want this? How could I ever not want this life? This is beautiful, bro. Totally, totally. No, I love that. I love that. And one last thing. July 24th is the day that my partner, Chris, uh, died. So this July 24th, we're doing this thing called, it's called Dopey Day. I can't think of a better name yeah. at, the, at the moment. Yeah. And on, on July 24th, everyone's going to put the Dopey logo over their eyes in solidarity and in remembrance of Chris and also not knowing who's an addict and who's not an addict. It's like the mystery about it. Like me and Chris were anonymous on the show. You didn't know who we were. If there's ever a time that you could participate in something like that, I would appreciate it. Dude, you don't even have to ask me. All you got to do is text me the, the requirements, what you want me to do, and I'll do it without even asking, bro, without even questioning it. I'm, I'm with you guys 100%. I love, I love what you guys are doing. I love that you're th- th- as focused and, and, and as determined to kill that stigma that is addiction because, listen, like, we're, we're people. I talk about this a lot in the book where people just like everybody else who deserve a second chance at life and, and do not deserve the death sentence that is the legacy or, or this idea that addiction is not going to end. It will end for you if you're listening to this. Just make a few right choices and I promise you that that momentum will carry you beyond what you could ever fucking imagine in this life. So please, if you're listening to this and you're still in active addiction, get clean. It'll be the best thing that you ever do in your entire life. And if you're, if you're in early recovery, keep it fucking going because you have no idea how far this is going to go for you. Beautiful. You just give it a shot, right? I love Absolutely. that. You Absolutely. You remind me of a much more successful, less Jewish, younger version of myself. <laughs> That's not a bad thing to be, dude. I love it, dude. Mike, thank you so much. Have a beautiful day, and I'll be in touch, all right? You too, brother. I'll talk to you soon. I also want to give me, like, off this thing, text me your address, and I'll ship you out some dopey gear. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, and I probably should say if you're if uh, I'll, I'll text it to you. And if you're and if you're looking for me, by the way, hey big Mike on Instagram. Yeah. YouTube YouTube is YouTube is Mike Malak vlogs M A J L A K. Twitter's at Mike Malak. Um, like you and need I, more followers. Give me. I know. I don't. I don't. But the difference is here is I want these followers. I want these right. people watching and and communicating with me. I try very hard to communicate back at, when possible. I get thousands of fucking DMs every, literally thousands a day on my Instagram. But when I see an addict reaching out. I, I will try my absolute best to reach back out and talk to you guys. So, um, yeah, that's where you could get me and hope to hear from everybody. So it was only an hour longer than I said it was going to ah, be. But it was worth it, though, right? <laughs> Absolutely, brother. Thank you, Mike. So that was Mike Malak. I fucking, I love, I mean, sometimes people ask if I get tired of dopey stories, do I get tired of drug stories? And the front of my brain always says, yeah, I've heard enough about it. I'm tired of it. But the second I start hearing the stories like that, my brain always perks up. Uh, There's just something about it for me. It's just great to hear anybody that goes through those kinds of depths can come back and live and thrive or or that we can live through it at all. You know, I I think about that all the time. I've been doing really good lately, by the way. I've, I've upped my game personally. I've been exercising every morning. Uh, I've been praying, I've been meditating, I've been going to meetings. Like I'm at a, at a high spiritual level at the moment, high spiritual level. I'm cutting out desserts during the week. I've, I've kind of just done it last night. Last night I had an orange for dessert, but my new plan, the Brad Katz diet is no carbs, no sweets during the week, uh, and then do what you want on the weekend. So that's the new thing. I'm on my way back. I gained all the keto weight back, except maybe a few pounds, and now I'm getting healthy. I'm ready to start running. I'm ready to change my life. Who is with me? 
Do you think I can do it? I don't know. I got. I, I was perusing the Dopey Nation Facebook site and, or page, and I got. I saw this thing, uh, a post this woman posted about her career selling Oxycontins, and I thought it was so perfect for this episode that I asked her to record uh, the thing as a voicemail. So she did, and she's got a great accent, and her name is Tara. Hey, all you dope and dopeettes out in the dopey nation. So I saved some of my episodes for when I went back to work, so I'm playing catch up. I was listening to Dave interview the other day on one of the shows, and the guy that he was interviewing was addicted to Oxy-80s. He complained that they were $25 a pill, and I absolutely lost it laughing. I'm in Kentucky, but I used to drive up to Ohio twice a month to bring back two to 300 Oxy-80s at a time to sell. I'd buy them for $20 there and bring them back here and sell them for $80 each. That's a dollar a milligram, and people bought them like hotcakes. Sometimes I got out of paying altogether by transporting for them, like take this back with you or stop and pick this up before you head up. Some people would come back to me two to three times a day to buy a single pill, and they would pay with singles or change. You would get people bringing you stuff for trade, like you're a pawn shop or trying to bargain with you to buy like half a pill. It's weird to look at addiction from both sides when you're in active addiction yourself. And I didn't used to be nice about it. I used to call people mutants or the walking dead. I got mad at the constant texts telling me that they were sick. I only stopped selling when they started putting the gels into the pill, and I was absolutely pissed because it sent me into serious withdrawals without even realizing I was an addict myself. But after I laid in bed for a week, shaking, throwing up, sweating, you know, all the things, I realized I was an addict too. I used to wake up and take an Oxy and crush a second one to snort. My reasoning was one for now, one for later. Then steadily I'd dose through the day to keep from basically feeling anything. I know this has every sign of addiction now with waving red flags, but at the time I really thought I was having fun and that was my mindset. Also, they were prescriptions, so I figured you couldn't be a drug addict with clean drugs. That was only reserved for things like heroin or meth. I look back now at how crazy things used to be, and I'm happy with the spot that I've landed in. Those pills carry 10 years each if caught with in my state. I'm sure the amounts that I was bringing back would clearly be trafficking. I've been robbed at gunpoint and had a knife pulled on me during these transactions. Our house was basically a trap house. I mistaked my phone constantly going off with popularity. People want to be your friend if they think that they can get a discount or free stuff from you. I'm lucky to have come out the other side and this story really took me back. Me stopping the pills wasn't the end of my drug story, and things definitely got uglier before I was completely out of the game, but I'm happy it ended when it ended and that I don't have more serious fallout like prison or death, which is really the only two options when I was active. So stay strong, Dopey Nation. Fucking toodles for Chris. So thank you, Tara. Love the voicemail. Love the accent. If you have a great drug story, a great dopey story, and you can keep it at a nice length, please record it on your phone and email it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. The voicemails are the lifeblood of the Dopey Nation and the Dopey Show. Also, emails are crucial for the Dopey Nation, the Dopey Podcast, and the Dopey World uh, in general. So send emails, send voicemails, but most importantly, go on to iTunes Subscribe to Dopey and leave a five-star review and write nice stuff. 
And if you write nice stuff about my father, he just, it makes him feel good because he reads it. He reads them every day. He's constantly looking. Subscribe to iTunes, write a nice review, make it five stars, say hi to my dad, and, uh, and we're good. Thank you, Mike Malak. You really brought the dopey this week. I love it. His book is called The Fifth Vital. His show is called The Night Shift. Thank you, Dopey Nation. Thank you, everybody. If you have a minute to go on to dopeypodcast.com and fill out that survey, that could be great. It's an experiment. Let's see what happens. Let's see who's willing to fill out the dopey survey. Until then, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. What's up, Dave and Chris? My name's Jake. I'm 25 years old from West Virginia. I just found Dopey about two weeks ago, and it's my favorite podcast of all time. Y'all are hilarious, and it's just gotten me through some really hard times. And Though I'm not clean myself, you know, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. Um, I really like Dave's song, and I'm going to do a little cover of it here on my banjo. Hope y'all don't mind too much. I wrote a uh, third verse myself. Sorry about the poor quality. It's just on my phone. And, uh, sorry about the banjos. Things hard to keep in tune. y'all hear this makes it through the uh, big inbox emails feel free to play a clip on the show if you want I, if not I know it kind of sucks alright I uh, really appreciate it thanks y'all